But anyways, uh, good to be with you again uh, this evening. Thank you for having us. I know the first evening is always a little tougher to have folks come out and uh, uh, with work and all. I know the city traffic was quite good tonight uh, for those who are in it, uh, from what I understand. So, uh, but I'm glad a few of you made it through. And uh, so we do look forward to a, a nice time together. We're going to have one session tonight. Now, it might be, a, it'll be about an hour session tonight, maybe a little bit longer, because we will have a, a some uh, basic stuff we want to try and cover. And then we'll have a nice uh, snacks from what I see out there. Very nice, very healthy for you, I can see. Cookies and donuts and all that kind of good stuff for you. And then after that, uh, tomorrow we'll come, and I believe it's 3.30. Is that correct? 3.30? Uh, it's good, good, good if the speaker has the time down, right? Um, and so 3.30 uh, tomorrow, we'll start again, and we have several sessions tomorrow. We'll have a dinner together, and uh, I think we have the Bennett's here to sing as well. And qu quite a nice time together as we did last year, I believe, as well. And then Sunday morning, we'll have our final session. And so I hope that's a good schedule for everybody, and uh, hopefully you'll be able to make it out. Now, we've given out a handout, and I hope uh, everybody's got one now. And I may have some extras, so if you want one particularly for yourself, uh, if you're a couple, uh, there may be some extras at the end. You'd be welcome to take an extra if you'd like. Uh, but uh, again, uh, looking forward to the opportunity to share uh, this book. Now, some of you were at the last few Bible studies we've had, and I just want to mention there, there might be a repeat of a few things uh, for those who have been in some of the studies, because uh, we've been to a, few, a little bit of the Hebrews. It's sort of an overview uh, for a couple of the Bible studies I've been to the last couple of years. And I think that's what sort of got things started as far as maybe doing a, a, a broader uh, perspective, realizing that if I kept doing that a little Bible study at a time, it'd probably be f you know, five or ten years by the time we got through it all. And so you've asked me to come and try to do it all in one weekend instead. That's great. I appreciate that. And so we're going to try and share with you as quickly as we can what the book is all about. A very difficult book in many ways, a challenging book, uh, and so hopefully uh, we can answer some of your more difficult questions that you might have uh, as a result of our studies together. Uh, we'll welcome questions, of course, as we usually do for our studies. And so uh, we, you can either write those down if you'd like or whatever. Just You can leave them up on the table, and I'll be glad to get them. Or you can ask me during a break, and then I'll be glad to share it uh, during one of our sessions. But we certainly welcome any suggestions or questions you might have about the book. And uh, good to see uh, some other folks here, too. I know Vaughn's from Westwood. It's good to see you, Vaughn. And Vaughn was asking if this was going to be the handout for, um, I'm going to be speaking there Wednesday evening. And I said, no, this is a little bit too big for Wednesday evening, I think. But you know, we'll, uh, we'll uh, cover a different subject area. So if you want to know a little bit more about the book of Luke, uh, we've been doing a series up there the last, what, three or four years, brother? We've been doing the book of Luke. And so you might find that interesting if you'd like to come up Wednesday evening. I'm sure they would not mind you joining us uh, if you'd like to go up there Wednesday evening. And uh, if you can't make it there, you can always go up to New York. We're going to be up in New York next weekend. Uh, Tuesday evening, we're in Vermont. So if you want us to you come to Vermont with us on Tuesday evening, you can do that. Uh, we're speaking up in Vermont. And, uh, and then after Westwoods, I think we're in New York, and then we'll be back home for a little bit. So anyway, we're, we're traveling around a bit, as our brother Bill mentioned, so we do appreciate prayers as we uh, try to encourage folks to study the scriptures, to see what actually is there. And with that being said, now let's look at the issue of the book of Hebrews. And again, there might be some, for those who have been with us in the past for some Bible studies, there might be in this first session some overlap, uh, things you've already made notes of or whatever. Uh, but you don't have these slides, so I did make all the slides new, so you'll be happy about that, even for those who have heard some of the details. Uh, and I've tried to do the whole book in slides. So you'll have all 13 chapters uh, covered in these slides. And, uh, and you won't have the same amount of detail you might have as far as a, like a hand of notes. 
but I think it'll help you helpful where you can go ahead and make your own notes on it and so on, and it'll be a help. So we want to do an overview first, and we call this uh, session zero. You see, uh, that right away it tells you I'm a computer person, right? At least software-wise, anyways. And, uh, and so we want to start with session zero. And we're going to do the first couple of sessions tonight as one session. I, d I broke it up here a little bit, but we're going to try and complete up through chapter two tonight. How's that? Isn't that exciting? And none of you have anywhere to go tonight, right? So, we're, we're, I mean, this is your last event for tonight, isn't it? Other than going to sleep. And so we should be fine, right? Unless you have another dinner planned or whatever it is, uh, then let me know, and I'll try to go uh, get done before then. 10 o'clock meal, anybody? Anyone get 10 no, okay, we're good. All right, good. Session zero. And so what we mentioned, of course, uh, this is all about, as a brother Bill mentioned, the superiority of Christ and the Christian faith. Uh, but if you read the book, uh, as uh, it depends on your perspective, where you come from, your culture, and so on, but you're, you're generally when you read the book, it presents a lot of struggles as far as, well, what does this verse really mean? This idea of fa falling away, for instance, comes out. Uh, we see, we'll see that in uh, chapter uh, 3 especially and, and elsewhere. And the writer tries to deal with that issue. And, and other issues about being enlightened and yet uh, not hanging on to the end. What, what's that all about? You know, <laughs> this hanging on to the end kind of thing. Does that mean uh, if I don't hang on, I'm in trouble? Well, uh, that could be if that's the case, but we need to look at what it really says, right? So we want to look at those kind of difficult verses and see what happens. Uh, so we want to look at the superior things of Christ, an overview here. And so I'll be walking around. I hopefully I don't get in any ways too, too bad in anybody's way here. But we want to just point out a few things. And I will be looking at some scriptures, of course, as we go through. I do have my Bible. I've been trying to get used to the online Bible or my, uh, my tablet, but I still haven't gotten quite used to it yet. So I'm still using the paper copy. But my paper copies keep falling apart, so I'm trying to get used to the tablet. They don't fall apart quite as easily. But uh, we will be looking at some verses together. And perhaps we could, should go ahead and read a first portion of chapter 1, since the Word of God is the important part of our study. Uh, and... I'm just going to observe things that we see in the book. But uh, chapter 1, and no doubt we've read some of this before, starting in verse 1. God, having spoken in many parts and in many ways, formerly to the fathers, in the prophets at the end of these days, has spoken to us in the person of the Son, whom he has established heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the effulgence of his glory and the expression of his substance and upholding all things by the word of his power, having made by himself the purification of sins, set himself down at the right hand of the greatness on high, taking a place by so much better than the angels, as he inherits a name more excellent than they. For to which of the angels said he ever, Thou art my son, this day I have I begotten thee. And we'll stop there, and we will look at, of course, some other verses as well as we go along through these two chapters together. But we want to look at an overview here. But you see right away, and we've mentioned in one of our studies together, again, I know realize some of you were not here, uh, the issue of the sun. I think we did a whole little session on the sun. Maybe it was a Sunday morning one time. And we looked at the issue of the importance of the sun. And what we'll find in each chapter, uh, or each section, I should say, we'll find something that is superior about the Christian faith. And so in chapter 1, it'll be the superior son. In chapter 2, it'll be the superior man. The third section, we'll see the superior rest. Uh, the fourth section, we'll see the superior priesthood. And then uh, we get to the middle of the book, and he stops. <laughs> sort of interesting, isn't it? You see, you, all you do is, I'm just observing what's there, right? He goes, he's saying, this is better, this is better, this is better. And now he says, let's go on. Very important point. 
that he's saying right up front, he's saying, here these things are superior, let us move onward, let's go on to growth, let's move on, because the indication is that perhaps they were going back. At least perhaps. He was concerned about it. And so he says, let's go on. And then he starts all over in verse uh, chapter 7, right? The second part of the book, he talks about uh, the superior priesthood, right? And then he goes on and, and talks about other things like the superior covenant and the superior uh, sanctuary and the superior sacrifices. And then he gets to the last section, 11 through 13 is the last section of the book. And he says, uh, by the way, let's go on. <laughs> and so you see there's, a, there's a, a literary style to the book. There's a way that the Lord has structured it so we can see what it's saying. And that should be a help to you as we go through. And I'll show you the uh, chart which is in your handout as well. And I think I gave you a color one last time if you were here. But I have a copy of the sort of what we call the grayscale one in the book. Uh, in the uh, book I, I guess everybody's going to call it a book now because it is almost like a book that you received. Um, but so one of the overview questions is, well, who is it written to? Uh, and that's going to be very, very important. You first of all notice all the things in the Old Testament that are brought out. The sacrifices and uh, the temple and uh, the uh, high priest and all the things that they get excited about, the sanctuary and how it's set up and all, the, and all these technical details, you're like, oh, how boring. But all extremely important to understand what God has to say to them. But th- the fact that he's in all these Old Testament elements, I call them, and then he has a lot of Old Testament references, many, many references are in there. I give you many of them as we look at them here uh, in the, on the slides. But there are many uh, references to the Old Testament. And there's a purpose to that. That is the writer, though uh, perhaps it could be uh, Paul the Apostle or someone else will talk about that, but uh, certainly understands his Old Testament, doesn't he? And he himself appears to be a Jew himself because he knows all this stuff. And he picks it all up and, and mentions it. And then he looks at the whole system in general, the, the whole sacrificial system and how it works and what it's supposed to do and what it doesn't do. And so this man, whoever he is that's writing, certainly understands that he's writing to a Jewish audience and that these people love the Jewish things, uh, the Jewish sacrifices and traditions and so on. Evidently, these people love them. And th- that there's nothing wrong, of course, in, in those sacrifices in the sanctuary and all that. We'll get, o- get to that when we d- uh, get there. But certainly uh, they are enamored with it, it seems, at least in so many ways. Uh, these believers, uh, or at least professed believers, uh, these people are Hebrews, it seems, but not scattered in Peter's sense. When Peter wrote his epistles, he wrote to the uh, Jews that were scattered, right, it says at the beginning of the, of the epistle. Here it seems to be more locally gathered, at least in a province perhaps. We can't be dogmatic. But he talks about gathering together and being under the sound of the word, it seems, together and things like this. I bring out a few of the verses for your own study. You may disagree with me, brethren, that's fine. You just don't have me back. But you see, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, but you see, uh, so some may suggest differently. They might think it's still a scattered one. But to me, just by the indication of these things, that they were helping one another as well, and they were having their goods plundered at times on behalf of others, it seems like they were connected together in a, in a, in a local area of some kind, it seems. And so we have Jews then, uh, we would say, or Hebrews, we will call them, or Jews, who knew the system very well and loved the Jewish traditions and uh, had evidently professed Jesus. That is, they had come along and had professed him and said, well, I know Jesus. And by professing Jesus, uh, they thought they were Christians. 
But it, it, some time has passed since they had professed to know Jesus, and there's been really no growth, no, uh, no headway, it seems, in the things of Christ. And now the writer gets very concerned because now he hears that some are not meeting together anymore, chapter 10. And that perhaps others are getting away and there's no fruit and they're staying with the milk of the word, it says, elsewhere in the book, right? And over and over, he begins to bring out the details. You get the sense that these people have professed to know Jesus. There's some initial excitement. And then what happened? It seems like it had faded, it seems. And as if there was no fruit at all, that basically they had gone along with the excitement of the time. They still called themselves Christians, but were they believers? Did they really believe in Jesus Christ? And the question is still valid for us today, isn't it? So many today that we meet, you know, we'll call you on the street or even our neighbors, whatever, oh, yes, I'm a Christian, and you start talking to them, and you can tell right away they don't know Christ at all. <laughs> they don't believe in him, right? Where's the end of the journey going to take you uh, when this earthly journey is done? <laughs> well, I hope it's the, inter- the eternal, uh, we call it the eternal inheritance, right? The spiritual inheritance. Do you believe you're going to be there someday? in that inheritance. Very important to see. And so these are the c- kinds of people I think we're dealing with. They had, bl- they had trusted in Christ, or said they did, uh, and there was a profession, right? Uh, and he treats them as believers, brethren. See, look, look at the terms he uses. You see, he uses us, the writer and the people, right, the Jews, that have professed to know Jesus. He said, well, that's us, he says. And he calls them brethren, chapter 3, verse 1. And also verse 12 and chapter 10, 19, and so on. He calls them brethren. And then he, 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 even in chapter 6, we'll get to that chapter at some point, we see some initial fruit that seems like they were actually uh, having uh, their goods uh, plundered a little bit initially. Some of the other Jews didn't agree with what they were doing, going, going to Christ. And uh, some persecution arose, perhaps initially, and they seemed to go along with it. They said, fine. And they were helping others out as well. Standing up uh, for the Lord Jesus, it seemed initially. But then, of course, we'll get to the whole issue in the book, in chapter 2, chapter 3, and also in chapter 4, especially uh, up front, all the way through chapter 6. You see, the issue is he's concerned about unbelief. That over and over again, he's pointing out that there seems to be something not quite right. They seem to know Jesus. They, they, They knew about him. And there's initial zeal for him, but they seem to let the initial zeal go. And now the question to the author is, was that just a a bump in the road in your growth? Or did you really not believe and you just sort of along with everybody else? You've seen things like that, haven't you? People, perhaps your own neighbors or perhaps uh, uh, young people camp or uh, that kind of thing. Where, or even, uh, you know, uh, uh, at a conference or a, a crusade. I remember we, had, we did one here in New Haven one time, or a crusade or whatever. And, uh, you know, people, there's a lot of excitement, isn't there? And a lot of people seem to go forward for things, and they're going to get saved. And, but some get saved only because their friends went up, right? They, di- they didn't really trust Christ. They just went along with the flow of things. But others, of course, trusted Christ and still live for Christ. Praise the Lord. Where are we at in our walk today, brethren? Where is our journey leading us? And where will the journey end? And what will be at the end of the journey? Now, we've been touching on this a little bit in the book of Luke, haven't we, brother? 
<laughs> in the book of Luke, we actually the same kind of issues arise in some ways. But the issue there, of course, is really he's uh, talking for the most part to believers on a journey, right? What happens on the journey itself. Here the issue uh, is related mostly to the Jews, the Hebrews. And so he's very concerned. So over and over again, he'll call them brethren, say, brethren, we, us. And then he says, uh, be careful, unbelief. <laughs> be careful of unbelief. So he owns the people. Very important to understand the book at all. And I think that we've mentioned in the past is he owns the people where they profess to be. For instance, if uh, all of you here, I don't know all of you personally. I know many of you personally, but not all. And so I, I, I can call you brethren, right? Because you're here, aren't you? And by being here, you're claiming to know Christ in many ways, right? You're meeting with the believers. And so I call you brethren. Does that make you all Christians? Well, obviously not, right? That doesn't make you a Christian, right? Just because I call you brother or brethren, right? That doesn't make you a Christian. I'm owning you where you are, right? You, you, you're coming in the meeting and that you want to be a part. That's we, Praise the Lord. We're glad to have you here, right? And I'll call you brethren because I know that, that, that you've called a, a conference together for those to learn from the Word of God. But there might be some who come in, which is fine, who don't know Christ. That's fine too, right? But I'll call the group as a whole the brethren, right? I'll, I'll, I'll just call you brethren. I, and so we see he owns them where they are. Well, let's go on. Date-wise, very important. In chapter 8, um, he says, we'll get to it. Chapter 8, he says, you know what? These things are about to disappear. All this stuff that you're dealing with in this Jewish system is going away. That tells, now, brethren, we know by history, uh, the Bible doesn't tell us. Uh, it tells us it's going to happen, of course. But by history, we know when was the temple destroyed? By AD 70, right? So by AD 70, thank you, brother. So by AD 70, uh, based on historical documents and various uh, studies and so on, we go by the experts in the area of history there, and, and they seem to suggest right around that time. And so at the time of this writing, it seems like it's still there, right? It mentions the temple. It mentions the sanctuary. It mentions the sacrifices. It seems like all these things are still going on. And so we can probably be assured that it's probably just, oh, I gave you the answer right there. Look at that. Did you cheat, Bill? Look at the sign up there. Okay. <laughs> That's okay. I'm sure Bill knew it anyway. All right. And so, you, and so uh, it, my guess is it's right before, perhaps a year or two before, that stuff goes away. That the author's making a final plea to the Jews that they had better put their trust in Christ. Because if they go, can you imagine those who did, and there, was, there were no doubt were ones that went back. Can you imagine, here it is, let's say 68 A.D. or 66 A.D. or wherever it was, 67 A.D., and they begin, some of them are going back after many years, right, after their first profession of Christ. And they're going back really not having believed. And you can imagine in two years later, the things, whole thing's wiped out, gone, the whole system. By the way, it's still gone today, isn't it? Still gone today. There's no temple. There are no sacrifices. There's no priesthood today. Now, they, they may do have some semblance of it. They try to do it in a home or whatever it might be, but it's gone. Now, they may have the holidays, right, you know, Yom Kippur and so on, but nothing the, the way the Lord had it set up, right, according to the law. <laughs> and see, the Lord got rid of it all. But he's warning them, isn't he? He's saying to the Jews, I'm warning you. It's going away. 
And why in the world would you go to some? It's sort of like you know, it's sort of like buying a car. Right? And the brother just bought a new car, right, in the back there. Yeah. It's a. It's like getting another car. And I know brother Norman just got one too. Whether it's used or not, whatever it might be, you think you know, if you know for a fact that your car is going to conk out after two years, uh, are you going to buy it? If they can guarantee to you, right, <laughs> that your car will not operate after two years, they want twenty thousand dollars right now for it. But in two years, gone. How many are you going to take it? Now, if you're a millionaire, you might. No, I'm just kidding. But you think I'm nuts, right? You, you, you're, you're nuts, brother. I ain't going to buy that car. Two years, guarantees gone? <laughs> Forget it. Isn't that what he's really saying to them? The whole system you're trusting in to save you in a couple of years will be gone. And so these are very profound thoughts that this writer is trying to put before them trying to encourage them to think on these things and not to get swiped, uh, swept up in the emotional aspect of things that can easily happen to all of us. Uh, so we have those things. The author, is per, we have no biblical warrant for saying any particular person except for Paul. I'm not saying Paul did. <laughs> I'm just saying that's the only uh, one that I can find any biblical evidence that may have written the book. And so I can't say anyone wrote the book because it doesn't say who wrote it, right? So don't yell at me and uh, later on saying, I, we don't know, brother. I, I know we don't know. <laughs> but people ask, well, how about Paul? Is Paul a possibility? And I said, well, it's a possibility. Because, you see, Peter writes uh, in 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, he writes to the Jews, right, we, which we already know. And in 2 Peter 3.15, he, he mentions Paul's writings, right? So if I go to 2 Peter 3, in fact, uh, maybe a brother can read that for us. 2 Peter 3.15, maybe a brother, that'll, that'll save me a little bit of time. If a brother will read 2 Peter 3.15 and, uh, and also 16. 3.15, yeah, 2 Peter 3.15 and 16. Who would like to read that for me if you've got it? Go ahead. Yes, go ahead, Brother John. Thank you, brother. Now, you see some important points come out. We could do a whole study for an hour just in those two verses. But um, beautifully brought out, the issue was he mentions another letter by Paul to these Jews, right? Or, or it seems that they're at least familiar with the letter anyway, like, without being dogmatic about the whole thing. But you see that they're, they're, it's written to those Jews that are scattered. Uh, Peter is, is associated with them. He's written. He said, we know, you, know, you know, Brother Paul, he's written about those, those kind of things, you know. And he's written another letter to you guys, the Jews in general. And he says, now, and, and not only has he written a letter, letter to you guys, and he's written many letters, that's true as well. Uh, that letter, he said, by the way, uh, or at least some, there, some of the stuff he writes is what? Well, hard to be understood, right? Well, the very writer of Hebrews in uh, chapter 5 and elsewhere, what does he say? Well, I have many things to say to you, brother. I'm paraphrasing, right? But uh, actually 5.11. Look at Hebrews 5.11, right? Hebrews 5.11. And we'll look at this uh, at, at another point in time. But uh, in 5.11, he basically says this kind of thing. He says here, Concerning whom we have much to say and hard to be interpreted in the speaking of, of it since ye are become dull in hearing. There it is. 
That is, the writer has a lot to say, but he's saying, you know, it's, it, I, this, this is advanced stuff, say. That's why you're here tonight, right? This is going to be advanced stuff, right? <laughs> and so you see, he's saying Paul's written some advanced stuff. You know what? And the writer here is saying, Dull of, now you, can you imagine, brethren, the elders bring me here to speak. And I said, look, you people are just dull of hearing. I, I wonder if they'd have me back. I, I, I don't know. You know I, uh, I would think they, they'd be seriously considered not having me back if I called you dull of hearing, wouldn't but that's what the writer's saying, right? He's saying that these people, right, they call themselves Christians, professing Christians, and they're dull of hearing. How many speakers have done that re- to you recently? We don't see it too much anymore, do we? Sometimes we need that, though, don't we? <laughs> to be told, you know, you know brother, hey, come on, brother, we've got to get going here, right? Get on to the good stuff, right? The, get on to the growth, he says to them. So he's, you know, he's a, he argues a lot like Paul. That's why many suggest, by, based on his arguments too, that it's a Pauline-type writing. Uh, although it has the great, uh, uh, perhaps, literature of, of Luke. Uh, but you see, he just brings this out. And so we, we get the sense that perhaps Paul could have. At least there's some basis for saying so. And uh, he's, it's likely not one of the 12 apostles, but it could be Paul the apostle. It's possible. Because two, three mentions, of course, the idea of, of uh, others having heard. It, it seems like it had been passed along. And uh, it does say in chapter 13, uh, those in Italy greet you. Now, I can't prove, of course, it's written from Italy, but it seems like there's a connection, right? And uh, who was in Italy, in prison in Italy? And, he's, and, and the person says he's uh, asked prayer for his release. Who, well, I, that seems to be something in favor of it as well, because Paul asked prayer for his release. And he knows Timothy's been released, and uh, so who would know that? You know? So you, you start thinking through it a little bit, and I think there's uh, significant evidence that it might have been Paul, but I can't prove it. So I just leave it with you to think about, and you may say I'm wrong. That's fine. I'm just observing what's in the uh, book, right? I, I can only observe what's there and say it's a possibility. But as far as uh, Apollos or Barnabas or other uh, suggestions, Luke and so on, there's no biblical basis for those. They may have written them. Hebrews may have been written by one of them, but I have no biblical basis that I know of. Now, if someone else knows one, let me know. I'd be glad to uh, know more about that. But uh, just uh, people ask, and so I just observe what's there in the Scriptures, and that's what we have. Now, lastly then, for the overview, before we get into the chapters, the two chapters, we just want to mention a few things here. Um, First of all, and I don't think I went into too much detail on this in our studies, let us go to him. Here it is, go, right? Go outside the camp. Chapter 13. He ends with that, basically, toward the end of the book. He says, now, after all this, let's go unto him outside the camp. Absolutely essential to understand outside the camp. And you're going to wonder, what, what is this outside the camp? Well, we'll get there. I'm going to do it now. <laughs> so we'll understand. You're going to probably wonder, what, what is the camp anyway? Well, we have to understand what the camp is, don't we? And so I'll let you think about that until Sunday. We'll get to that Sunday. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> But no, I, I, I think you know what the camp is. But th- see, when, when our Lord went outside, he went outside where? Where did, where did he die? Well, he went outside Jerusalem, right? And its system, right? And all that it had outside the camp, in a sense, right? Outside all that was Jewish-related and said, I'm going out there. And we see some great truths about that. For instance, think about Moses. Uh, before he built the tabernacle, he had a little tent he went out to, right? 
And that tent was in the camp, and Mo- God would come down in glory and, and, and meet with Moses in the, uh, in the uh, tent in Exodus until the tabernacle was built. And then, of course, the tabernacle was right in the middle. Except before the tabernacle got built, something happened. Do you remember what happened in chapter 32 of Exodus? That was the golden calf. Remember that, the golden calf? And the golden calf, of course, Moses had just gone up to get the uh, law, right? He comes down, and they're already dancing and drinking and, and have a golden calf, right? And the tabernacle hasn't been built yet, but right after that in chapter 33 of Exodus, what does he do with that tent where he meets with Moses, where he meets with God? Brother, you just use outside the camp. Interesting picture, isn't it? You see that the issue was when there's defilement in the camp, God's outside. <laughs> or it's dealt with, right, when we're judged or whatever. So something's got to be done, see. That's an important lesson for us, too, isn't it? That we don't want to have defilement in the camp, as it were. But we go outside to him. And so Moses went outside, and the people would rise up, right, and watch Moses go out there and, and talk with God, right? And the priest would be out there interceding with him and so on. These are all great, important lessons we'll see come out right throughout the book. But going outside the camp, see, the key purpose is going outside to him. And what is outside the camp? Well, that's what the author's trying to bring out to these people, that the camp used to have glory, right? But where's the glory today, brethren? Well, it's in the heavenlies, isn't it? It's outside the camp, isn't it? It's not the Jewish camp anymore. It's outside. And uh, he's in glory, isn't it, the Lord Jesus, on the right hand of the Father. And so... And uh, wh- what happens, we're going to be going from glory to well, glory. <laughs> so we're going to join him, aren't we? Uh, if, of course, if you know him. We always got to put the caveat in, right? If you know him as, as your Savior. Uh, that's where the throne is, Hebrews 1.3 and uh, chapter uh, 12 as well. Where the heavenly calling is, chapter 3, where the great high priest is. We have an intercessor, right? Just like Moses outside the camp with the people interceded, we also have, don't we not have a high priest that intercedes for us? Praise God, we do. <laughs> Can you imagine we didn't have a high priest that helped us along the way, intercede on our behalf before God? <laughs> I think we'd have some serious problems. Uh, and where's the highest position and so on? Where's, where, it's where heaven is. And so, uh, everything seems to speak of the fact that, you know, it's not the system here. It's there is where we're going. Are you looking forward to going there? <laughs> and so you see, but these people are what? Well, again, they profess to know Jesus. But rather than going outside the camp and looking to these things, what were they doing? They seemed to be going back, looking at the Jewish things. And now the writer must go from chapters 1 all the way through and say, now let's go take a look. I know you're interested in these Jewish things, and God did have them there for a purpose. I'm not just throwing them away just for the fun of it. <laughs> and so the author very carefully details how in every way this is superior. And they had better be very careful about going back and stick with going forward uh, if they truly know Christ. And so it's outside. There's Exodus 19. That's where the tent went outside, as uh, Brother uh, Wally noted. Um, it's uh, been moved, of course, from earth to heaven. Uh, Hebrews 13, 13 brings this out, as we'll see again, as we already mentioned, uh, outside the camp. Let us go unto him. Well, if it says let us go unto him, where is he today? Well, you, you do know that, right? <laughs> he's, he's, with the f- he's, a, he's above, right? He's in the heaven. Right? The third heaven, some people call it. He's with, the, with God and the, and, the, and the right hand of the Father. 
Uh, and so Moses moved it outside, and there's Exodus 33. We mentioned that's the issue. Um, I'm sorry, that's the, that's the place where he moved it outside the camp. I'm sorry, Exodus 33, not 19. 19, of course, is where the camp is first noted, just so you know what the word camp means. Okay, so there it is right there. Just so we mentioned. Again, we'll touch on it when we get to chapter 13. And really one of the key things, of course, is we'll see in chapter 11, the problem with this for these Jews now, think about it. Their whole system was a system that they could see. Right? Sacrifices, they could see. Right? The high priest, they could see. The sanctuary, they could see. Everything they could see, right? Except for maybe God himself. But they had Moses represented that, right, or whatever. Or, or Aaron, the high priest. They could see everything. And now with Christ, they must do what? Look, have faith in the unseen. And that's always been the case is believe what God has said, right? Faith, that's even Abraham, right? It's always been by faith. God has always dealt over time. Whatever revelation he's given, he's always dealt with men by faith. They must believe. And if they will not believe, that's the one sin that cannot be forgiven. Unbelief. And so he tries to bring out in chapter 11, for instance, we'll see the great, you know, why, all those, why are those people of faith mentioned in chapter 11? And why only certain ones? Why not all of them? Well, very important lesson, of course, and we'll get to that when we get there, right? You'll have to be here Sunday to get it. So <laughs> but the particular reason why he selects all those individual characters, right? And he starts, you know, back at the creation, right? And then goes, goes forward and he chooses certain ones, right? Not the whole line, but he chooses certain ones, right? because he's trying to show them something about faith. And the point of faith is being able to go from the seen, as they had it, to the unseen. And that's a big challenge, isn't it? When you've had that which you can see all for so long, you know, and of course, you still have to believe in God, you still have, to have faith in God, of course, but they could see things, right? And they could see how God operates and so on. But now they had to go to the unseen, and oh, that's hard. But isn't that what faith's all about? <laughs> Believing what you can't see, right? Because the uh, faith is the substance of things hoped for, evidence of things not seen. <laughs> uh, you can see that is a verse from Hebrews. Uh, and so here's the outline, which you've seen. Uh, I have it in color here. I don't think I put it in color there. Uh, but uh, this is the outline we've uh, had in the past. And so you see we're going to cover tonight just this little bit here. I know it looks like a big bit. But we're going to go pretty quick. Uh, we have the son and man, right? The superior son, the superior man. And I've given you a little bit of outline of some key things in each of these sections. This is just observations. And I'll show you each section as we get to each part of the book. I'll have that part of the chart up on the slide for you so that you don't have to keep trying to go back and forth. Okay. But we have the first two we want to look at, these first two chapters, the issue of the son and the issue of the man. Uh, and so he's going to start off. Obviously, the important thing is they have to see that this man, Jesus, is far more than they perhaps in the past have recognized that uh, he's a son because he's like David's son, right, which they, he gets into. And so we'll take a look at that. So there, there's the second part of it. That'll be, uh, we'll go, so we're going to get through all that this weekend. See that? Praise the Lord. <laughs> we'll see. Session. Okay, so here we go. Uh, here's the chart now, the first two chapters. Uh, we want to take a look at it real quickly. And so you see I read uh, chapter 1, verse 2. 
And so we're going to see a lot of different things. Uh, he's saying there's a different uh, times that were in, in involved here, different ways things were done. It was a piecemeal kind of thing. That's what the Greek word sort of means, um, in different ways, different sort of a piecemeal fashion. He, uh, he would reveal something here and then later on reveal something else, right? And then later on reveal some additional thing. And so over time, he revealed things in different ways in sort of a piecemeal fashion. So we have uh, this brought out in chapter 1. And we've looked at, uh, for those who had been with us before, we looked at some detail about the uh, issue with uh, this uh, son. I just want to make sure I didn't mess this up here. Okay, I think I'm all right. And so we have uh, these various, uh, this contrast over and over in the book. And I'm going to give you four or five tables in the, in the handout that you'll see I, I make contrast. I just observe what's there, right? Here's what he's saying on one end. Here's the parallel. And the parallel will have some differences because there's something different about Jesus, isn't there? There's something different about him. And that's what we're going to see as we go through the whole book. And it will be the fact that he's more excellent, superior, uh, greater in every way than the system that they had had in the past. The system itself was good. It, uh, it showed them some great things, shadow of things and so on. Uh, it wasn't an evil system. It was a good system, but it was not as effective as Christ is. Right? It wasn't effective, and actually hardly at all. It did not perfect a man. And so we mentioned that. So these things in chapter 1 and verse uh, 1 and 2, you see this. He talks about the issue uh, of the prophets. He spoke to the fathers and the prophets. And then at the end of, end of these days, different times, has spoken to us in the Son or in the Son, right? In the Greek, of course, there is no in the or in the person. That's been added, of course, right? It just says in the Son. The point being that the Son is the revelation of God, isn't it? He's the message. Now, our English doesn't sound so good that way, does it? In the Son. <laughs> you wouldn't say that. You'd say in the person of the Son. I think that's probably a good translation, right? But what he's saying is, is God, right, has manifested himself in the Son, hasn't he? His characteristics, who he is, his nature. And that's why he goes in and talks about the effulgence and the brightness of his glory and all. Uh, who else has that? other than the sun. So the sun becomes key. And we mentioned, of course, and we gave you some details in some of the notes I think I gave you on the sun last one of the times we were together. And we mentioned how important that the Jew understood who the sun would be. But they didn't want to believe it was Jesus. That was the problem. They understood that if the Messiah came, the Messiah would be what? The son of God. They understood that. That's in their own scriptures, right? That basically that he'd be a son. And the question is, well, how can that be? Because he's not only David's son, but he's also David's Lord. <laughs> and how is that possible? That's impossible, right? Well, not with God. <laughs> it's certainly possible. He has to be. Well, well, we'll take a look at that. So here's your first chart to summarize some of the things from the, about the Lord Jesus uh, and what's happening uh, here as far as this new system goes, Christianity in general. Here's the new. And so in the past, they had different times. We have one time in verse 1, right? And we had different ways. We have one final way, the Lord Jesus. In the days of law, after those days, right? It means after the days of law. Uh, we have in the prophets, now in son. See the difference? In prophets, no doubt, before. He, and he spoke by Moses and others as well. Uh, but you see, now he speaks in son. A very important lesson there. And then we have the heirs of promises, but he was, uh, he's the heir of all things, it says. Oh. <laughs> uh, is that different, brethren? 
Abraham an heir of promise, right? And the Jews, heirs of, prom- of the promise given to Abraham. But now we have the very heir of all things, which is greater. You should be able to answer the question, shouldn't you? You see which is greater. But that's what he's trying to do for the Jews, right? He's just, I'm just observing what he's saying to the Jews, saying now, and he's going to say, well, basically paraphrasing, which is greater. <laughs> and we'll see that when we uh, get to the uh, middle chapter, you know, when we are the middle section uh, at the end of the first half. Then we have man's glory, uh, I'm sorry, uh, made, made earthly things, right? But he's made the universe, uh, which is greater. He who makes earthly tabernacles and things that go with it, or he who made the whole world, <laughs> which is greater. And then we have man's glory. But see, we're, it is an issue of glory, of course. There's great beauty in the tabernacle and Moses and the, the brightness of his glory affected Moses' face. He had to put a veil on and so on. But you see, God's glory, right? That's the key. So in their system, we had the glory, but it's related to man in many ways. Although God's glory did show forth a little bit in the uh, Holy of Holies and so on, or we know. Uh, here with the partial character of God in the high priest and so on, here we have the full character of God. The fulgence, right? The brightness, the glory, and everything. Uh, all about the, the attributes of God coming out. Uh, we have the purification many times by others, right? Here we have purification once by Christ alone, which is greater. It, just by the fact that this continues would suggest that it was not effective, doesn't it? And then we go on. We have a, uh, the lower place. Here they have the higher place, right? An earthly place, uh, a heavenly place. Messenger, son, right? You'll see that with Moses as well. And then we see a changeable service, you know, the God's ministers, the angels. But here we have an unchanging service, an everlasting throne. Here we have a changeable existence. Here we have an unchangeable existence. That is, they could die, right? <laughs> he never dies, the Lord Jesus. Uh, he's, and, well, actually, that comes out here as well with the idea of continuing forever. The priesthood continues on forever and so on. And so here's what the, this is what he's doing. Right? He's just going down and sort of just out, laying out, right, for him the contrast. But very important for us to understand too, right, because when we get questions about, well, who is this Jesus anyway? Is, what's so important about him? Well, it's important to see that he's much greater, isn't he? He's got a name that's more excellent. I didn't mean to put that on there, right? He's got a name that's more excellent, greater in every way. And so, you see, we have to realize that and be able to promote that. You know, when people, people will ask you questions. So, you know, who's this you know, three-in-one thing or whatever? You know, well, who's this God and all that kind of thing? Well, that's important to be able to answer. But this establishing this foundation is very important to understand the whole book, that they would have to realize that Christ, the one they were believing in, did they truly believe in? Or was it something they just sort of lo- went along with? Again, question is valid for us as well as we consider we're on the journey. Oh, we're on the journey. What journey are you on? (laughs) Because I hope you're following him. Well, we need to move on. And so you see the new is superior in every way. And we've looked at the issue of the sun. And I'm going to mention a few verses here. Now, we've already read verse four uh, in chapter one. But you see the sun is mentioned over and over again all through the book. Because the Jews understood the concept of a sun. How important were sons to the Hebrews, do you think? I, I heard someone say very. Well, that's true, isn't it? Very important, wasn't it? They looked to have a son, didn't they? Perhaps because he could be the Messiah, maybe. 
but certainly uh, he would carry on what? Well, the family name, right? Or the, 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 the family inheritance. Because remember, uh, the way God set it up, and that's God's choosing, was he set up so that the inheritance went through the man, right? That was his choice. Now, you might say, well, if you don't like that, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's the way he decided to do it, you know? Some things the way it goes. But you, you, you see, that that's the whole purpose is to see the issue of the name and who we're attached to. And he did it through the man because, well, he sent the man to die, right? And which man are we attached to today? Because you are all attached to some man, aren't you? You're either attached to the first Adam or the last Adam. And which Adam are you truly attached to? Now, physically, of course, we're physically attached to the first Adam, aren't we? Physically, we, we got those attributes. But in reality, we want to be what? Attached to the last Adam, don't we? The new man. That's where we want to be. And so the importance of the son cannot be understated. Uh, he is superior in every way. He's heir of all. Um, but there's a problem, of course. And as we shall see, I think we mentioned it on another slide. Um, we, we talk about this issue of dominion. Well, that's a problem because, well, what's happened? Well, we'll, f we'll find in another chapter later on is that that dominion's been lost, hasn't it? That man was, God had decided to give man dominion. Again, that's his choice, right? So I can't complain about that. That's in his sovereignty, he decided man, man's going to have dominion on the earth. And he, but he gave man a will, right? And he didn't force man to sin, right? He gave him a choice. And he, of course, did the wrong thing, didn't he? You can blame the man. I know the woman's the one who took the fruit. Not an apple, by the way. <laughs> Not that we know of. <laughs> right? But uh, he took the fruit, right? We don't know what fruit it was, except we know what tree it was from. And sort of interesting. So he takes the, uh, you know, Eve takes it, and of course, then, but see, man was responsible, wasn't he? That's God's, that's God's choice. Man was responsible. And so we have Adam, of course, lose his dominion in some sense. Maybe not fully, some suggest, but we think, we certainly he did it to some extent, lose his dominion. But you see, very important then to understand that God's will will be done. And that if he says man's going to have dominion of the earth, then who's going to have dominion of the earth? That man will. Except that it'll be a different man. It'll be, another, it'll, be an, it'll, it'll be Adam, won't it? But it'll be the last Adam. He will have dominion. That's what God has said. He, that's his choice. Now, whether we want to join him with that, that's another question, of course. We would have to decide. Uh, but uh, that's what he's trying to get these Jews to think about. You know, what, what are you going to do? <laughs> uh, he's a representation of God. Uh, he's in God's bosom, John 1.18, right? Uh, he mentions that. Uh, by the way, the issue of the glory, I mentioned that already, but you see, uh, he's, he's the effulgence of God, the representation of God. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, 1 Timothy 1, 11, it talks about, uh, your Bible might say, the glorious gospel, which is true, of course, right? But it's not, a, uh, it's not an adjective, though. That's the thing in the Greek, right? See, if it were an adjective, we'd say the glorious gospel, right? But it's a possessive which means it's the gospel of the glory. It belongs to glory. The gospel is connected with what? Glory and being there. So though we would say the gospel certainly is a glorious thing, isn't it? But that's not what the scripture really says. It's the gospel that in a sense is owned or possessed in relation to glory. And if we, so the gospel is connected with what? Not just, well, you know, I, I know Jesus now. That's not the issue, is it? That's part of it. But I know Christ, and he's, he's dealt with my sins. 
And he's going to be with me on this trip to the wilderness, isn't he? And he's going to get me where? Glory, right? Because that's, that's the gospel of the glory, right? He's going to get me there. And so sometimes we're a little weak on our gospel. and We just sort of say, well, you know, uh, pray the Lord uh, saves you and you're all done, right? Well, that's very nice, but we have to be careful, don't we? What do we mean we believe? <laughs> I hope we all believe that he's rescued us from bondage and our sin, that he's with us today in the struggles of the wilderness experience, and that he will get you into heaven. Do you believe that today? He'll get you there? And so he wants the Jews to see this. He'll go through it, actually. You'll see it all the detail as we go through. He's going to do it with the Jews. He's the creator and maintainer. And by the way, his work is done. What priest could say that in this world on earth? Uh, tell me something. Where, where was the chair in the tabernacle? Are, were, were there any chairs in the tabernacle, brethren? None recorded anyway. There, maybe there was. I don't know. The only the chair I see, I, I see the, the closest to it was when Eli was sitting by the gate, right, <laughs> of, the, uh, of the court, and he was sitting down, right, and he fell over and broke his neck or something like that, right, when he heard about his two sons. That's about as close as I see a chair to the, why? I don't say there weren't perhaps chairs in the court. I don't know. But we know there's no chair inside where the ministry was done. Actually, there was one seat, wasn't there? I should, I should take that back. Uh, wh- where's the one chair there, the one seat? By the mercy seat, right? I, just want, I was just testing to see if someone would say, oh, brother, there's a seat, but no one, no one caught it, but that's good. Okay. It's the mercy seat. And who's resting right now? Well, it's God. It's the, he's done the work, right? He, he's resting. The Lord Jesus is where? What is he? He's seated at the right hand of, of the Father right now. Right? The work's done. And so you see... No priest on earth could say that, though, could, we, could they? They never sat. They were continually working. They had continual sacrifices. But Christ has done the work, and so we uh, have a superior man and uh, a superior son. Uh, and so he goes into angels. You'll see in that chapter, that uh, chapter 1, and also in chapter 2 as well, um, where they're connected. And so angels somehow were very important to the Jews, uh, they gave the law, or at least were in relation to the law somehow. We see these in the verses I've mentioned in Acts and Galatians. We don't know the details. All we're told is they were involved in the ministry of the law, whatever that means. Maybe some of you brothers know or you were there or something. Let me, let me, let me know. I, I, don't, I don't know what that means, other than that somehow they were involved in giving it. Whether they interfaced with, you know, with God and Moses somehow or whatever, I, I don't know. Uh, but basically, what we find is the author tries to bring out that though the Jews would respect the angels very much because of their involvement by God in the universe, they're very powerful beings, aren't they? Uh, marvelous creatures. Uh, but there are some differences. And, and one of the key things he'll mention is that they're inferior to the Son and that they don't have the same power he has. They didn't create the universe, did he? But Jesus did, right? They didn't create, the angels didn't do that, but they're powerful beings. And so he's trying to bring them down in a sense. They're thinking down a little bit on the angels saying, look, you might think these guys are great and they're involved in your law and they're involved with the, you know, Abraham, right? Remember the angels came and visited Abraham and they, they would think the angels were marvelous beings. Absolutely. He's saying that's great. But you know what? There's someone that's better. Someone greater than that. Don't miss that because you see that. That is true, but there's something greater. And uh, he's going to go, he'll look at Abraham and Moses and all the different, he'll say, there's, there's nothing greater than Christ. And he uses their own scriptures to show it. And so we go on. And so 
the, the Son is both human and divine. We see these are the scriptures that we've looked at in the past, perhaps. But you see in Luke chapter 22, uh, when they look there, uh, you can take a quick look there, but Luke chapter 22, that's the place where they're trying to, uh, they're trying to get Jesus to say he's the Son of God, right? It's, a, it's, a, it's before the uh, council, right? And the council is trying to, of course, they already got him in, in custody. And so all they're looking for now is uh, something they can use to what? Kill him, crucify him, right? get rid of him. Right? They don't want him. They've already rejected him, right? And they want to crucify him, so they'll, they'll find a way. And, th- and they know the way, right? Because they say, well, we know the Messiah is going to be the Son of God. If we can get this guy to claim to be the Son of God, we've got, we've got our blasphemy, right? Can you, can you see? It's unbelievable. They understood that the Messiah would be the Son of God and so when he claims to be such, they're going to do what? They're going to kill him, deny it. That'll be their, their, uh, you know, their reason, right, for uh, convicting him of blasphemy. Now, if for any man were to say that, perhaps that would be true. But with Christ saying it, it was actually really true. And they're crucifying the one who said, told the truth because they had already made up their minds that he was not the Son of God. But they understood the importance of the Son and that comes out in chapter 22. And they say, art thou the son of God? Why would he even ask such a question? <laughs> Unless they understood what that meant. It meant that he would be the son of God. But you see, th- the problem is it was their view of the son was only partial. That is, their view was he would be a, a man, but a man with great power, and a man w- who would be politically savvy, and a man who would uh, show judgment on the people, right? But they've missed the part, of course, about the son also being one who'd come in weakness and suffering and those kind of things. They missed the first part, didn't they? And so when we only take half the scriptures, that's where we get into trouble. <laughs> Have you ever done that, get in trouble when you only take part of the scriptures? And, oh, I got the answer to something. And then, whoops, whoops. Oh, I'm, I, especially if you've taught on that thing before. <laughs> and then you really get yourself, right? You got to always be careful. Don't you? What, what does the scripture say as a whole on these things? Uh, and so, you see, he was the Messiah, the Son of God. They expected the Messiah to be his son. They just used that as a pretense to kill him, even though it's true. And they need to believe. But this is what he, he must be believed, as you know from John chapter 20, John 3, John, 1 John 1, 5, and so on. Uh, that's how we overcome the world and so on, right, by believing in him. And now he's, he's, he's going to begin over and over again to hit this home with the uh, folks there. Would they believe? that this Christ, this Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God? Or would they too, like the Jews of old, reject him? And so the Son is greater. He's in a better place. He has got the title Son. We saw that in verse 4 we read. Uh, we mentioned verse 5. Uh, we, a very important point, Psalm chapter 2. We'll go over there. Psalm 2. Um, and uh, in Psalm 2, he's quoting the Old Testament. We said he's going to do that quite often. And we won't be able to go to all of them, brethren, but again, we're just trying to do our little overview here tonight. But he's not going to go to, uh, we're not going to be able to go to every verse, but I put them on the slides for you to go ahead for your own reference. I will, decl- verse 7, I will declare the decree Jehovah has sent, said unto me, Thou art my son, I this day have begotten thee. Ask of me, and I will give thee nations for an inheritance and for thy possession the ends of the earth. Thou shalt break them with a scepter of iron. As a potter's vessel, thou shalt dash them in pieces. And now, O kings, be ye wise and be admonished, ye judges of the earth. Serve Jehovah with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun and so on. Whoa, what is he talking about here? 
the writer's quoting, right, in verse 5, he's quoting Psalm 2, verse 7. What is the context of, verse, of chapter 2 of Psalms? Because that's important, isn't it? That this is the one, the son, right? Kiss the son. He's going uh, to rule a, a fist of iron and so on, a scepter, uh, be a king and so on. Uh, when is this going to happen? Well, obviously not yet, has it? But it will. And so he's bringing forth to them something that's going to happen after he's been resurrected from the dead. The whole issue then of being begotten, as we shall see in our studies, is not begotten as birth but begotten in death, from death, among the, from among the dead. Uh, now, it can be, of course, of birth, but that's not the case here. See. And so why, how do we know? Well, look what happens. He's dealing with the issue of kingship and glory and, right, dominion and so on, right? And all that occurs after he's been begotten from among the dead. So I don't think we're dealing here with his birth, but begotten from the dead. And all about those verses, and we see elsewhere as well, Psalm 89, other places where David notes a few things, Second Samuel. Uh, this whole issue of begotten can deal with the idea of begotten from among the dead to life. And so we see it there. Uh, he's deserving of glory and worship, verse 6 of chapter 1. Uh, let's move on quickly as well. Uh, this sort of finishes up this first chapter very quickly. We see... Uh, he basically says this is how he's greater. The son is greater. He's the, he's the source of power. Uh, he doesn't just have power. He's the source of it. He's the source of authority. And we see Psalm 45 quoted. And then uh, he's the Lord and the creator. And we see Psalm 102 quoted. And then we see, or maybe not quoted there, but at least it may be indirect reference. Uh, he never ends. He never changes. Uh, he's, uh, he's got a greater position and so on. Some of the things we already mentioned from our chart. You see, he's, great. he's trying to say this son is greater than any angel that they would say is powerful and that that was involved in any law giving or was involved with Moses or Abraham or whatever, greater in every way. Would they believe it, that this man is great as Lord Jesus Christ? And so we come to chapter 2 and we get this little parenthesis. You, you can read it right there, chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. We'll just mention it briefly here. But in chapter 2, you get this little uh, sort of a, he stops for a, for a second. You know, we do that sometimes when we're having a conversation to explain something. He says in verse 1, For this reason we should give heed more abundantly to the things we have heard, lest in any way we should slip away. And then he goes about the word of angels and so on, and how shall we escape if we neglect or are negligent of so great salvation in verse 3 and so on. You see, now he takes the first four verses or so of this uh, chapter, or 2, and says now, um, if the son is superior, what are you going to do, brethren? That's what he's saying, right? If he's superior. Uh, he's the one who's got all power. He's the one who's going to rule based on your Psalm 2 and so on. If, if this is what he is, then we better think carefully about our response to his revelation. You see what he's saying? He, he sort of got a little interlude here. He says, now, I've just told you all about this son. Now, let me warn you, brethren, be very careful about your response to what I've just said about this son. And that's true of everybody today, isn't it? Who hears about the son. Ought they not to be carefully weigh what they understand about the son? Because that could be held against them, can't it? They can't be claimed. You, you, stand, you sit here tonight not knowing Christ, for instance. Having gone off the flow, or maybe like I was for many years, I went to church because I enjoyed going to church. 
and never knew Christ until someone showed him from the gospel, from the, from the Bible, right, and said, this is the gospel. This is what you got to believe. Just because you go to church doesn't save you or baptized or whatever it might be. And so you see, he says, you've got to stop and think because, see, don't, let it, don't, don't slip away, he says. But why is he saying that? Because, see, they'd come along, hadn't they? They'd gone along with these things about Christianity. And they were with Jesus, uh, or, I mean, I say, with, with the Christians, I should say. And they've sort of gone along with it and said, oh, yeah, well, we, we, yeah, okay, we'll go along with it. Hey, we like those miracles we saw, sure, you know, whatever, you know. They're all going along with it. Some are believers, some are not. But th- he's concerned that many of these may not know Christ because they're not staying with it. They're leaving. And a believer doesn't leave. A believer stays on. Remember John, uh, in fact, John's epi- one of John's epistles, remember he says, they went out from us because they were not of us. Eventually they leave, don't they? If they're not really of, of Christ, they can only do it for so long. And then they leave. And it's a sad commentary. But you see, he wants them to think about it because, see, the whole issue is they may slip away. That is, some of them are starting to go back, it seems, going back to Jewish things. And that's what he's, why he's going over all this stuff about, well, why are you going to back to the inferior things? Because if you go back, it's like a boat on the dock. And I think I may have mentioned this uh, example, perhaps, of one of our studies. You know, it's like a boat at the dock. And the, everything's fine as long as the, there's no problem, right? <laughs> Uh, some of you have d- done boats, right? And you, you, you can pay, bring a boat, put it up next to the pier, or maybe you call it a pier, or a dock or a pier, whatever you call it. And, and uh, in the Northeast, I can't remember now. But you see, and you, you come up alongside, and, and you put the boat there, and the boat actually will stay there, right? As long as the water doesn't what? As long as the water doesn't move. Right? As long as the water's calm, and you put the boat right there, and you stabilize it, right, and you just let it sit there, it'll stay there. Until when? Well, until the water starts moving. Right? The waves start, you know, maybe the wind p- kicks up or someone uh, makes some waves in the water or whatever. It's, it's some kind of something something uh, rattles the water a bit, and now the boat starts to wiggle a little bit, right? And eventually the boat does what? Well, it slips away. And so you see, that's the idea he's got here. The problem, of course, with the boat was what? If you remember from, I don't know if I, I think I shared this last time. But the boat was never moored, was it? Never tied up. Never attached. That is, they came alongside and enjoyed the benefits of being a Christian, right? They had been with the Christians. And they enjoyed the fellowship dinners. We all like those, right? <laughs> We're going to have one of those tomorrow, by the way. Yeah, so we enjoy the fellowship dinners, the Christian uh, fellowship, and so on. And uh, I did that for 20 years, right? Before I came to know Christ. Right? Enjoyed the church. And I, I, was, well, I was a boat coming alongside, right? I, I was enjoying all the benefits of being in the church, right? People were showing love to me and giving me gifts or whatever, and, you know, or whatever. They kissed me hello and so on. Oh, they're just marvelous, right? It's a nice time. Can you imagine, though, if I had died, having had all that and never had Christ? Hmm. I find it hard to even think about. But that's the problem here, uh, that these... Never, he's concerned that they never moored the boat. That's the Greek word. That's the idea of the Greek word slip away. They never put the rope around the uh, pier, the, the Christ, right? Never put the rope around it and tied themselves up and said, done, right? Or had, or had Christ tied on, for that matter, if you want to do it that way. And so many were beginning to feel the rustling of the water, right? Things got, you know, it, it had been quite a while now. Uh, that, that initial uh, 
persecution had ended evidently. Things were gotten sort of easygoing, and they were fine as long as they, but they had gotten so far away from that little bit of persecution at the beginning that now the persecution was starting again. They were getting struggles again. And the Jews were out there saying, you shouldn't be over there with those Christians and so on, right? Persecuting the ones that were with Christians. And now some of them were going back because it was just easier to do that than to stay with Christ. And so God uh, brings out, or the author brings out, um, you see, you're, you're neglecting the salvation or negligent. That is, you don't care about it. Not negligent sometimes as we do in English. Negligent as in you know it's there, but have no desire for it. Just let it go. Not important. That kind of negligent. And that's what he's saying. Remember in verse uh, 3 or 4, there was this, don't, uh, verse 3, don't be negligent of your salvation, right? Or don't neglect the salvation. That's the idea of the word. That these people knew all about salvation. They didn't need any more study on salvation. They had all the basics, didn't they? But do they believe? That's the question for him. And so chapter 2, he brings this out, and he basically says there is no excuse because God has provided the evidence for them. God does not expect us to use blind faith. God has provided plenty of evidence that his son came and died. The question is, will we believe? And so uh, we'll see this come out in the wilderness experience as well. They had evidence. Uh, we, we could say maybe Abraham, maybe Abraham had some blind faith. He did, perhaps. But we're not all required to do that. Um, the world is subject to man. So you see, uh, now we come to verses 6 through 8. He quotes Psalm 8, okay? And it talks about, well, man was made uh, a little lower than the angels, right? Crowned with glory and honor, right? And so what I've done is I've just observed what it says in verses 6 through 8 in Hebrews and also Psalm 8. We see three things. Uh, man made, uh, uh, made lower than the angels, right? I suggest here, and I can't, you know, prove it, but it seems like what he's saying is, look, angels are spiritual beings, men are not, right? Men are a combination of flesh and spirit. They're a little bit lower. They're also lower earthly-wise, too. Some suggest that's true. That's fine. But the idea is you have, he's comparing the angels, right? These spiritual beings are all very powerful, not all powerful, but very powerful and so on. He compares them to a man, right? But this is the superior man. But... Even comparing to a man, a man is composed of what? Flesh and spirit, right? Not just spirit. And so he brings out the fact that that was true. That had to be the case. He wasn't going to be all spirit. He would have to come as a man. So he's lower than the angels. And then he's crowned, uh, crowned man with glory and honor, right? Well, Adam, but you know, he, who is he talking about in Psalm 8 anyway? Well, he's talking about Adam, isn't he? Except that, of course... The New Testament writer does what? He uses it for what? Well, for Christ. <laughs> see, it's, it's an inevitable thing, see? But the, the psalm writer, what? he's just thinking about Adam, right? Oh, man, and what you've done for him, marvelous, isn't it? It's true. Think about that. That in Psalm 8, the writer's talking about, uh, it seems to me, the first Adam and how he was a man, and God made man a little lower than the, he did. And uh, he's crowned with glory. He, he, had, he had glory in the garden, right? That's how God decided to do it. We, we may not like it that way, but that's what he did. Right? And he gave man dominion, right? The third uh, key thing, right? He gave man dominion over his works. So here you have a, a garden with God able to come in with man. There's glory there. There's honor and beauty, and, and he has dominion. Everything is, is beautiful. Uh, but then it says something. It says, yet not all things are in subjection. <laughs> well, wait a minute. 
I thought he gave him dominion. So what gives? If he gave him dominion, that means he should have dominion. But something happened, evidently. And so, brethren, you know what happened, right? We have the fall, don't we? We have that Adam sinned. And so, unfortunately, you see he lost a dominion. And that's what goes back to the issue of, well, what's going to happen now? God said man will have dominion, and he gave man dominion. Man loses it by his sin. But now look what happens in verses 9 and 10, right? The second, uh, the second and the last, oh, uh, oh I probably should say and. Um, well, actually, no, I guess I, I'm the, the world's subject to the man second and the last time. I see what I said here, okay. But verses 9 and 10, made his flesh and spirit. Lord and angels, and of course, also to die. Interesting. Crown with glory and honor. Is that true today? Sure. Uh, how about the dominion now? If we take the sequence of events that Psalms talks about, and the Hebrew writer points them back to the Psalms, uh, we're missing the last piece, aren't we? Same sequence. Jesus, just like Adam, was made what? Lord and the angels, right? Crown, glory, and honor. Both are crown, glory, and honor. The first one had dominion, lost it. The last one, well, he will have dominion, won't he? But not yet. But see how beautiful it is because it's really saying it's going to be there. We can show that there will be a dominion. Man will have dominion. Lord Jesus Christ. He's trying to say this man, this, this great man, Jesus, the perfect man, is the one who will have the dominion he, that the first man lost. Very important for the Jews to see this and also for us as well because this, again, gives us a nice uh, view of Scripture all the way through, all, like the book of Genesis and how it connects with the New Testament as well. These things, just observing what's there, right? And these can be helpful uh, between Hebrews. So that's Hebrews 9 and 10. And here's the uh, little, little chart again. So he's made lower than the angels and subject to life. The first man is subject to life. That is, uh, we don't know exactly the details, but basically as long as he uh, didn't take of the tree of good and evil, he was okay, right? He, he could, maybe he took of the tree of life over and over again. I don't know. I don't know how that tree of life worked. So you can argue with me about that later. <laughs> but you, however that worked, whether it was a continuous thing or he had to keep eating of that, we don't know. But, it's, but once he falls, no more tree of life, right? <laughs> Whatever it was, you know, it, whether he had ever taken it, I don't know. Uh, it, we just don't know exactly how that worked, although it's in Revelation as well. But we, uh, won't get, uh, too, uh, we won't say too much there because we might be uh, conjecturing, okay? But he, so the second man made lower than the angels and subject to death, not life, right? Subject to death. And uh, giving glory and honor to the first man, giving glory and honor to the second man. Everything is subject to the man. Everything is subject to the man. Right? Disobedience to his word. Oh, ah. <laughs> Obedience to his word. And what will he bring out, brethren, to these folks over and over again in this book? Being obedient to his word, right? Over and over again, being obedient to his word. See, the first man was disobedient to his word. That's, this is a parallel, but it's a contrast. The, the last Adam... The second man, obedient to his word, even unto death. Uh, in, the, in the volume of the book is written, I come to do thy will. Right? And then we have uh, loses dominion, subject to death, of course. Once he loses that dominion, uh, he gains dominion and gives life. Right? So just some suggestions uh, as we look at what the uh, sections are bringing out there in the, in the book. And again, perhaps you have some other lines you'd like to add. You can let me know. Just a chart that I made. And so we have, again, the superior man. If you look at the two men, right, the, the, this, the, the first Adam and the last Adam, the first man and the second man, 
you get the idea that they, they should understand, oh, well, this is an interesting point that you're making about this man. And it comes from our own scriptures, <laughs> our, own, right? our own psalm brings it out. And they begin to see, oh, okay, the superior man. And so the question for us, brethren, is to which man are we attached? Um, if we're attached to Adam, of course, uh, then uh, if we're more to him or that's the peer we're on, then y- you know what? There's something certain that's going to happen. Our, our doom is sure. What's interesting, once you're moored to the man, that's it. You're secure in that man, aren't you? Uh, how many of you can get rid of Adam in your, in your first Adam out of you? How many of you uh, can get rid of the characteristics of Adam in you? You can't, right? I mean, your flesh and whatever, your eyes, whatever. I mean, you got they, the, the genes keep on coming down, right? And you can't do it. Once you're attached to him, well, there's not an awful lot you can do, right? Which means you're going to do what's going to happen to you eventually? If he doesn't come first, well, you're going to die. Anything wrong with that? Well, of course not, right? Because you're going to go to be with him, right? But physically, you're going to die because that's the reality of what's happened. Nothing to do about that's you know once once that progress started, that's what happened. But you see, there's a thing we can do, right? I can be more to Christ. I can put my trust in Christ, believe in Him, and what He's done for me at Calvary. And that he will get me through the wilderness experience and get me into the inheritance. That he'll get me to the promised land, we might say. And, uh, and uh, so once we've moored ourselves to him, this is what he's trying to bring out to them, that they aren't really attached to him if, if they're going to go back. Because if the, if the boat's moored there, well, the boat has no way of getting back over there, does it? It's already attached over here. If, Christ, if you're attached to Christ, then also your salvation is sure. You can't go anywhere. You're, you're, you're safe in him. And so you see, that's actually almost the opposite of what the book sometimes seems to bring out, doesn't it? In reality, the book, by looking at it this way, shows your security in Christ. But the book, if you're not careful, will show your insecurity in Christ, if you're not careful how you look at it. And so we have to take this approach very carefully. And so he's the source of salvation. Uh, it mentions he's the, basically the only perfect or qualified man, right? He was perfectly qualified to die. You couldn't die for your own sins, right? Because that's what you're supposed to get anyway, right? That wouldn't get you to heaven, right? You have to be perfect to do that. But see, those first uh, sacrifices, all that first system cannot make us perfect, can it? But Christ can make us perfect. That's the beauty, if we'll trust him. Uh, so we have the superior man, uh, man here. And so you see here the problem uh, a Jew being moored to a rejected, despised, suffering man. That's a problem, isn't it? Think about it. If you were a Jew back then, what, what had happened to Jesus? What happened to him? Well, they crucified him, right? They mocked him, crucified him, got rid of him, right? And now you've got Jews who, the, this writer saying, you've got to be attached to him. How many of us would do that? But you see, we have to, don't we? It may seem strange, and the world may mock us for being attached to some dead man. <laughs> but what they don't realize is that man today is alive. And so you're very careful and very important to see that the Jew back then had a real struggle. And we, so we have to be kind to them, compassionate in some sense, don't we? Uh, we can't just uh, say, oh, the stupid people. Right? You know, no, you can't do that. So they had a real struggle. Because as Jews, when they think of a dead man, that's defilement, right? That's, that's bad. They weren't even to touch a dead man, right? And so here, they're to be attached to a dead man? One who suffered and as a criminal? Can you even see what they're doing? 
that when, once they attached themselves to Christ, what were they saying about the, the old? That was it. They were separating from the old, right? And they were putting themselves in a very tough, sh- tough situation, in, uh, at least w- with the other Jews. And, um, and so and, and it, those other Jews would come back to them and say, well, wh- where's the kingdom, right? They, they, uh, you, can, you can understand, they'd mock them, right? Oh, where's your kingdom? Where, I thought he was going to bring a king. Where, where, you know, the scriptures say he's going to have a kingdom. Where is it? See? But see, they didn't realize the kingdom is yet future. God's got grace in between. And so God chose what? Suffering is the means. So this is what he touches on in chapter 2, doesn't he? You may say, well, why God choose that way? Why didn't he choose some other way? Well, unfortunately, that's the way he chose. But it's the way that serves his righteousness, doesn't it? His justice and all that goes with that. That he would have to do it in such a way. Maybe there was another way. I can't think about what it would be. But perhaps there was another way that could suit his justice as well. I don't know. I don't think so. But maybe there is. You might know it. Let me know. (laughs) But God knew that this way he could still be God, right? That no one could come back to him and say, well, you're unfair. He dealt with sin well, didn't he? By suffering and death. And so uh, he, we suffer ourselves physically because of sin and so on and the, the, what's in the world. And so he does this, right? He shows suffering as the means. We suffer in this life. Now, we don't all suffer necessarily, but many of us, but when one suffers, all suffer, right? Together we do suffer. Why? To bring sons to glory, right? Get to glory. And through disobedience in a place of glory, the first man brought, isn't that interesting? In a place where he received great glory, Adam, the first Adam, he brings death. Isn't that interesting? But isn't this great truth as well? That through obedience in a place of suffering, the second man brought glory. These are great truths that we're, we're going to see brought out in the book of Hebrews that can mean an awful lot to us as we talk with other folks that have struggles with Christ and who he is and how he's going to help and so on. So there we are. We, uh, the final uh, portion there is just this idea of attachment. And so uh, he is saying, yes, you have to be attached to this man. And that's what we see in the rest of chapter 2. Uh, this attachment to uh, this man does mean separation from the old stuff. Oh, absolutely. It's going to be hard. But that's hard for us as well. If you know Christ here today, right, we're separate from the world, aren't we? And we, we, we are a little strange to the world in many ways. And if we're not strange to the world, then maybe something wrong. Because <laughs> we're different. And uh, we're, we're, uh, attached means oneness with him, and uh, it means we are human, right? We, we, there's humanity involved because he was, he was a man. Um, and, of course, uh, it means trusting him. Uh, this comes out in Psalm 22. And uh, attaching means uh, children of God, right? He says uh, in John and also in the first epistle, right, that we're children of God. That's, praise the Lord. We're attached to him. We are children of God. Uh, attached means, oh, obviously, now if you attach yourself to him, that also means death, <laughs> And suffering, things like that, right? That's true, too. But you see, it also means life, doesn't it? Which, uh, you know, for, yeah, actually, attachment means freedom. I put freedom instead of life here, but life's true as well. Because, see, eventually, right, that attachment to him brings freedom from death. You can't stop death from coming, but you can change the end of the journey, as it were, right? When this life is over, you know where you'll be going. And so he says, superior, man is superior to angels. The son is as well, but man is in chapter 2. And uh, he gives the example of Abraham, just a sl- small example of Abraham at the end of chapter 2. And he says uh, he was a man of flesh. And, uh, and, and then I think he's connecting it with angels because angels, they can fall, but it doesn't ap- we, we have no documentation that, that they're ever saved, it seems. So the angels learn something, don't they? 
that there's something different about man, that man in some sense is greater than angels, in some sense, that we can be saved from the fall. But an angel who falls, it seems that it's done. And God can rightly do that, can't he? Couldn't God just say, well, you're a sinner, you're done. He could rightly say that, but see, it's a compassionate God. He's given us a way to life. Uh, and so, um, and so he, he talks about uh, uh, Abraham, uh, who has a high priest. Well, of course, his, you know, we all have high priests, right? And they had a high priest, too, which he'll go into in chapter uh, 5 and also chapter 7. He'll go into that. But uh, uh, basically from among men, right? The priest comes from among men. But you see, it's the superior man that's able to help man. Was Moses able really to perfect men by interceding for them? Well, he helped get them along, didn't he? So he did have a, a, a benefit there. But, he, uh, but God, uh, Moses did save him a few times by interceding. That's true. Because God said, uh, let my wrath burn, right? Let me destroy these people. I'll start a new nation. And that would have been valid, right? He could have done that because Moses was from the line of Abraham, right? So he could have done that if he really wanted to. He didn't. But you see, we have a superior man, one who can help men, uh, who is effective in helping men. Uh, they didn't have any weakness. Did Abraham have any weaknesses, by the way? Did Aaron have any weaknesses? Moses?